Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. Each week I talk to a guest who is building a sustainable media business. I'm wrapping up a series featuring those who are building independent local publishing businesses. I like to say this is the hardest of the hard problems, and there are many hard problems in publishing. Uh, I want to thank Outbrain for supporting this series. As part of it, we're hosting a lunch during uh, CES, which is coming up this week. I'm going to be leaving on a Spirit Air flight for Las Vegas, which I, I cannot wait. And, and at the event, we're going to discuss you know, the advertiser role in supporting sustainable local business models. And, and this is going to get tricky in a recession, assuming that we have one, and all signs certainly point to that. Because let's face it, there's a flight to performance, and every everyone has to fight for, for budgets. And so oh, there's been a lot of talk among marketers and advertisers about how they need to really think about like where their dollars are going. And I, I think this is an important topic to, to address. And to do so, I'm going to get the views of Crystal Olivieri. Uh, she is the uh, Global Chief Innovation Officer at Group M. The event takes place uh, this Thursday at 11.30 a.m. Las Vegas time, although who knows what time in Las Vegas, if there is Las Vegas time. And if you want to come, just shoot me a note at bmarcy at therebooting.com, and I'll make sure you get signed up. And it would be great to meet in person. Uh, the event, again, it's at 11.30 a.m. on Thursday, January 6th. It is at the Catch Restaurant, which is in the Aria. Thank you again, Outbrain, uh, for supporting us. You know, they've been great partners, and uh, they've enabled the, these important conversations to take place. Also, one other final quick note. I have another podcast that I do called People vs. Algorithms. Each week, Troy Young and Alex Schleifer and I uh, discuss patterns in media, tech, and culture. It's, it's a fun discussion show. It's a little bit different from the interview format of this podcast. And we keep trying new things. We'll keep evolving it as the year progresses. But please do check it out. I would love any feedback you also have on it. Just search for People vs. Algorithms on Spotify or Apple. So this week on this podcast... Uh, I'm going to be speaking with Scott Broadbeck, who is the founder of Local News Now, a network of publications focused on communities surrounding the Washington, D.C. area, like Arlington and Fairfax. These are places that have had high population growth in, in the last uh, 10 plus years. I can remember when I lived in Washington, you know, they were totally different. The, the entire area was totally different. And they're also, let's, let's be clear, very high income areas. And that, that is an advantage in building these models. So Scott and I discuss the the ad model that uh, local news now has, and you know what's working, and also the limits of of nonprofit models, and, and much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Again, would love to hear your thoughts on the rebooting show and things you'd like to hear going forward. My email is is bmarcy at therebooting.com. I finally switched to a custom URL, so some real progress on that front. Hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, Scott, welcome uh, to the podcast. This is the last podcast we're recording in 2022. So it'll be the first one of 2023. No pressure or anything. Uh, Brian, no, happy to be here. Screw it up. <laughs> yeah, long time listener, first time caller. So this is, this is great. Awesome. We're actually wrapping up this series on local and I, I've really enjoyed it. I want to thank Outbrain again for, for sponsoring this because you know, they're important discussions to have. And the reality of the industry that, that I'm in is like, yeah, a lot of the, the sponsors want to be attached to specific issues around like data and stuff like this. So it's great that they're underwriting this series because I love talking about this because this is the this is the hardest of the hard problems to solve. So how in the world, first of all, like before we get to local news now, like how, why in the world would you get go into local news? Uh, it, it is a bit of a questionable decision that I ask myself <laughs> sometimes. For whatever reason, I've always been attracted to to local. So 
growing up, I'm actually here in my childhood home recording with you for the holidays. You know, I had I bought a scanner, like an old school scanner that could get cell phone conversations uh, back in the day. Is that and legal? Like, ride, it was. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> Uh, but I would like ride my bike to see what the fire trucks were doing. And, you know, that, it's that same ethos that has attracted to me, me to local news. And while I'm continuing to do this 12 years later, uh, you know, even though I figure that there are other things I could be doing, you know, I think local is a very important thing. And it's a very interesting challenge because nobody has the answer. Yeah. So walk me back uh, with how, how you got started 12 years ago. So I, a, a lot of people who are running independent local sites like mine come from a print background. I actually come from a, a broadcast broadcast background rather. Yeah, I worked at uh, stations in Washington D.C. after graduation, and at some point uh, while I was getting an MBA over at Georgetown, I, I kind of said to myself, looked at the direction of the industry, and didn't love where local was going, and ended up leaving and just on a total impulse, uh, starting my own site. It was like a one day thing. Like I came up with the idea in the shower. Everybody hated the name I came up with for the site, but I didn't like the things that, uh, you know, my friends came up with. And so I started it at almost 13 years ago, covering snowstorms in DC that, that winter. And, uh, somehow I'm still here. So wait, what was the name? There's three sites now. So, but what, what was the name that everyone so, hated? So ARL now is the flagship. It, yeah. it covers Arlington, Virginia. And then yeah. we have uh, two others that we own and operate. So in Alexandria, Virginia, AOX now, and in Fairfax County, FFX now. And then we partner with a couple other DC area sites to help them sell their ads and, and, and run the sites themselves. Okay. But the first site was the Arlington site? The Arlington site. Yeah. Why, so do, people hate, it, why do people hate a ARL now? It's like a uh, they they thought they didn't think people would get it you know ARL what what is that people to this day I, I pronounce it ARL other people Arl. call it Arl uh, you know that's a point of contention yeah. but uh, we've stuck with it and and the shortness of it has actually been an asset yeah you know you make names mean anything at the end of the day I don't think it matters in the the, long the run, rebooting show it? for instance Ex oh my god now we're getting aggressive it is a little long I have to admit and and. Jay is nodding along the, our producer here because I think he's been advocating for me to drop the show from it. And maybe, you know what? This is, this is beginning the new year. So who knows? By the time it comes out, maybe we'll just drop show off and pretend it never existed. We'll see. We can do that. There's, there's no rules. So what was the opening that you saw? Because I lived in, in, in Washington for a s brief period of time. And it was, it was in the late 90s, I think it was. And, you know, the local news, I was getting the Washington Post delivered every day and stuff like this. And the Washington Post was always like between like, is it a local paper? Is it a national paper? They still don't know. Yeah. I don't, well, I think it's like, yes, they definitely don't know because there's a lot of interesting things going on there. I don't know if you have any insights, but what, what was the opening that you saw? Because I mean, I think Washington as an area is like, is actually really attractive because I think about if I go to, when I go to Washington now, it's not often, but it's very, very different than when I lived there in 1999. There's a lot more money. Like there's a lot of money in the, in the Washington DC area. So I think it is actually a pr probably a pretty good area to start like local news sites? So the initial opening I saw was that Arlington, and when I launched the site, it, I was in my 20s. And, and the only, you know, the, the real local news outlets that were focused on Arlington were meant for people, you know, middle age and up. 
living in single family homes in the more affluent parts of Arlington. So, you know, I wanted to launch something that was going to speak to people my age, you know, people who are, you know, more, more advanced in age as well. But uh, there was nothing for us. Pe- my friends who mostly lived in DC at the time all thought Arlington was boring and nothing happened there. <laughs> and I was convinced that that was not the case. As it turns out, uh, I was right. And there's actually plenty to cover in Arlington. Now, if you want to go way back, Arlington had its, well, Northern Virginia, I guess, had its own daily newspaper. So there was a point where people did not think Arlington was boring. But nonetheless, you know, at that point in also, time, it was a, just like a, a couple a, weeklies in the post. Yeah. But it's also, it's a boom, it's been a booming area, right? Like, I mean, like the area, the, I forget what they call it, but the area around Washington, D.C. has has boomed and like the population growth in 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 Arlington, Alexandria and like Fairfax has been tremendous, hasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, to your point, it's a populous affluent area. And, you know, the model that I'm employing here, which is mostly an advertising driven model, is working here. You know, I would say that that's probably part of the part of the reason we're doing as well as we are. You know, if we were in a less populated, less affluent area, I still think we could make it work, but it's working to the degree it is in part because of the market. And, you know, as you look across the country at, at the various local news efforts out there, everyone is different. And that is reflective of a bit of the market uh, dynamics in each place. So what do you think? What's the sort of explain the sort of secret sauce that that you have like with these communities and also like how you identify how local to get, right? Like, I mean, like, why not like just have one for you know, all of the, I'm trying to remember the geography, but like, you know, I, you, you could say like, you know, Arlington, Alexander to me, like when I was, I was living in, 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 in Washington, DC and I was like, oh, okay, it's just Northern Virginia. <laughs> so when I, when I started this, I, I did register domain names for individual parts of Arlington, thinking that that was a possibility that maybe we needed to, to go more. Oh my God, you're going to go that local. I was just going to do all of Northern Virginia. Well, the problem you find there is that as you zoom out too much, people lose interest. If you're trying to make it too general, you know, you want something that's going to be, you want to cover news that's going to be relevant to them that they actively want to read. Because, you know, unlike uh, the weekly newspapers out there who get the benefit of just pushing out a print pod product to a whole bunch of addresses, if we want to succeed, we need people coming to us. Now, to a degree, email newsletters are a way to push. But that only gets us so far. We still get uh, most of our traffic through social and search and people just typing in the domain name. So we are, I I should say, a a for-profit site. We're not a nonprofit. There are a lot of great nonprofits out there. We've stuck with the the for-profit model. It's not very profitable, I, I will tell you, but it's profitable enough that, you know, our, my incentive is to appeal to as many people in Arlington as possible. So rather than focusing on a subset of types of news, I try to cover everything on the site, try to appeal to people who live in far Southern Arlington, far Northern Arlington, young and old. And that's, I think part of the secret sauce is being really audience centric in terms of knowing what, what it is, what kind of information they want, what kind of information appeals to their daily lives. It's a hard thing to get right. And I, I think a lot of other attempts at, at launching local sites struggle with this, where you kind of have, especially the people coming from a pin, print background, I think sometimes people wonder, okay, what is news rather than what is some, something that your readers want to know? And it's a, it's a fine line and, and there's a lot of intersection there. But we've 
in my opinion, done well in, in terms of knowing what our readers' interests are and serving them in a way that impacts their daily lives. So give me an example that's that highlights that that divide because I think it's an interesting nuance about like what is news and what what people find essential, right? Because like at the end of the day, you want to be essential to the audience, the like your your local audience. And sometimes like you end up getting pulled in different directions, no matter what publication you have, away from your audience. And I think this has been like a sort of story of the previous era and and now I feel like it's now much more common that publishers recognize that they have to be audience focused to to be essential. Yeah, I, I mean, you were talking about this with the guy from Manchester. You can't mm-hmm. just cover all local government. You know, that's all vegetables with no, uh, you know, no meat, no dessert. We cover anything that we think our readers are going to be broadly interested in. So that extends to local business, restaurant openings, restaurants and closings. We cover. Uh, Public safety, so crime and fire. You know, I love chasing those fire trucks on my bike as a kid, and we're still doing that uh, essentially with the site. And we do cover local government. We cover. We try to be kind of scoop oriented. So, you know, one of my fellow Arlington-based news organizations is Politico. I kind of watched what they did and, and applied a little bit of that to the local model of you know being very, very both scoop oriented and. and and kind of playing towards storylines. So, you know, when there's a topic right now, it's there's a housing debate in Arlington that we've just covered, you know, over and over again in multiple ways. I, I think we've really served our readers well with it. But, you know, that was another thing that I, I saw Politico doing where they would kind of take this one topic and really run with it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's always the question, right, with, with a lot of these local sites is like whether it does the kind of like the the blocking and tackling stuff like that the people claim that that is the missing piece and i think uh, in large part it's true and it generally leads to like accountability and 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 stuff like that because like here in like new york uh, there's a little bit of a kerfuffle over have you seen this like congressman who apparently made up like he just got oh, elected yeah. to congress he made up like his entire <laughs> like apparently just like everything <laughs> and um yeah, there's like the the normal Twitter wars uh, going on over it, like who to blame, other than the guy who made up everything. But you know, like the New York Times finally got around to covering it after the guy was elected, and Newsday, which used to be like a great local paper, right? I mean, like seriously big local paper, you know, totally missed it. Like it, it's about balancing that with the the lifestyle stuff that people have always relied on on local papers for. I feel like. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a uh, you know return to some some old school principles around you know some of the old school newspapering when you didn't have the uh, regional monopolies that kind of I, I think made newspapers a little lazy. Uh, let's say on in terms of some of their decisions, they didn't have to work as hard, hmm. uh, appealing to an audience as they did before when the you know it was a multiple newspaper town and. Yeah, I, I, the internet kind of does that for us. So, you know, as I mentioned, if if 
we're putting out something that people are not interested in, they're not going to read it. So we not only have to cover things, but we need to do so in a way that's not super dry, that's you know engaging. So if, if we're covering local government and we cover lots of local government, uh, we're trying to make it a little more active. We're not, you know, this is not a, an attempt to be the mic of local news or, you know, one, one oh, of those no, you don't want to do that, Scott. No, I don't want to tell don't. you what to do, but you don't want to do that. So yeah, on the editorial <laughs> side, we're, we're really, uh, you know, focused on if we're going to cover something that's a dry topic, we're going to find a way to make it more engaging. And, uh, you know, one way that I think brings people, one thing that brings people in, in my opinion, is our comment section. We had ARL now especially has a very active comment section that we try to moderate to the degree possible. But uh, I've seen that, that that's a bit of a differentiation. Not everybody yeah. has opted to keep the comments we have, and there's a community around it. And I, I hear over and over again. Now, some people hate the comments, yeah, and rightly so. The comments can be a bit of a, a of a cesspool. I'm but a little torn. I, I saw I saw your I saw I saw before you sent me the gear thread on on the comment section because it actually piqued my interest because I, I was one of the people who gave up on on comments kind of early because I I think it was related to being to being a reporter where like I always I always treated the comments like uh, with a little bit of trepidation because I I knew there was usually nothing good down there. You know, I was like, I'm like a big runner. And it was like, to me, it was like the porta potty. It's like, don't, don't look down. There's, there's no, there's nothing for you there. Don't not look down. I mean, to, to a degree, you're right. I go into the comments section. I don't necessarily agree with uh, much more than, uh, you know, 10, 20% of what's being said in there. But, but the fact of the matter is it, you do get different, uh, especially on a local level, you know, as you as you contract the community, I do think that it becomes more civil, becomes yeah. more interesting. It's not just a total food fight. You know, it is, but it's not a total food fight. And there are legitimate issues that are raised in the comments that further stories. Sometimes we get ideas of, you know, approaches to stories, uh, follow-ups from the comments. They will point out any tiny typo we make. So, uh, <laughs> you know, by a 30 to 60 minutes after something's published, it, it's buttoned up tight. Oh my God. That's but, one way to drive engagement. Just screw up like it's with an apostrophe, without oh an yeah. apostrophe. You'll get like... But, it, you know, it's really the, I, in my mind, the the best part of it, besides, you know, the engagement, people actually commenting is the, the fact that it gets people to read. It gets people to read things that they might not otherwise be reading because they want to see what people yeah. in the community have to say about it, even if it's something they disagree with. And so I think, some of the news outlets that ha dropped their comment section a few years ago, they really missed out. They really, I, I think they, they're, they're, I get where they were coming from, but they had their own little social network on their site and, and they totally, you know, sent those readers to places that were even worse. You know, as long as there was just like the tiniest amount of moderation there, uh, I guarantee you that the comment section on a local news site can be better than the comment section or the, uh, you know, what I see attached to our articles on Facebook. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's, it, it, I mean, that's why I, I found it interesting because like, it's true. Like in some ways, publishers outsource the engagement part to Facebook, which is kind of crazy because why wouldn't you want that to happen within, you know, your own environment? But it requires, like you pointed out, it requires putting a resource against. I know that I gave up on comments in my last job once like i was like oh my god like it's like like this game of whack-a-mole would be like it was just 
I probably, this was probably not a strategic decision. It was probably like <laughs> me, like I, getting tired of getting like some like, you know, random like Slack message, like, oh, there's spam in the comments section. And I was like, okay, somebody's got to take care of this. So why is there this? And I was like, oh, no. It's a major headache at times. The comment solution we use, we use Discuss. It's gotten better over time because you can now restrict it to only people who have commented before. I, I actually find that that yeah. raises the level of the discussion. So it, it makes it, e the practical effect is, is it makes it easier to ban trolls and they can't just like create a new account and start commenting. Yeah. A strange thing for me, just for some reason, I always thought discuss was discus, which makes no sense like at all, because it's like obviously about discussion. I actually have no idea. I could be wrong. I, <laughs> it's got to be discussed though. I, I realized that later it was just like, I guess I didn't run in a lot of circles where people talked about it that as much. So <laughs> like I was like calling it discus. I find I have this problem with a lot of words in the New Yorker that are unfamiliar. I just mispronounced them. So talk to me about the business model. Because I mean, you so, started this at a time before like subscriptions were, you know, frankly, even like considered for, for most news. So, so Brian, I know you're a fan of uh, publishers giving you their revenue numbers uh, and they never oh, do. Yeah. Uh, I'm oh, not going to do it. I, Let's go. I, I will uh, open the kimono a bit here. <laughs> so we are an ad driven model. We are primarily advertising driven. Uh, I'll give you a percentage breakdown. Uh, of our revenue. Wait, that's not, that's, that's not the numbers you were promising me the numbers. I, I didn't mean percentage it, numbers. They're relative numbers. It's better than nothing, right? Uh, so about 25% of our revenue at this point is programmatic. Uh, we do you know, get a decent chunk from programmatic, believe it or not. About 5% is what I would categorize as other. So that includes memberships, which is, which is just on the Arlington site at this point. Merch sales, we sell some shirts and stuff. And then uh, there was one other in there uh, that, that's not coming to mind. The rest, about 70%, is direct sold ads. And much of that comes from inbound interest of people wanting to advertise with us. And so we've really optimized our business around finding solutions for local advertisers that like actually work and providing them a good customer service experience, uh, which... Apparently, is something that has not uh, necessarily been the case with some of the some of my print competitors. We we really focus on trying to make it a streamlined experience for just, advertisers just being, and actually providing ROI. You mean just being like easy easy to work with and and that stuff, or you know, we, just I del and delivering on the business like objectives. So you know, we by virtue of being a independent uh, publisher and not having any, like, I had no idea how this business worked, to be honest with you, when I started it. Uh, I, I didn't even know what insertion orders were. So, like, we never started out with some of that, like, those legacy processes. And I kind of just saw what was going on and thought that our advertisers probably just want to place ads as quickly as possible and not have to deal with a whole bunch of signing a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, we really have tried to streamline it and make it so that even though we're a smaller buy for a lot of our advertisers, they're not spending a ton, ton of time doing so. Yeah. I think one of my big takeaways in my adventures in sales was like, and they're probably truisms, but it's be easy to work with. 
<laughs> and like like make it really easy for people to like you know give you money and and be responsive like i think those two things like go a long way in sales not totally there on both but i'm trying to get there yeah no we've we, that's definitely something we've done and we've tried to to the extent we can innovate around some of the offerings so we were early to sponsored content which now is well above 50 percent of our business compared to display advertising we're, we're continuing to try to find you know things that we can do with the sponsored content we've a- added some interactivity with uh you know sponsored polls and sponsored forms playing around with it, it it's the problem is, uh, especially on at this local of a level, you know, it's taken years and years and years just to get people out of a print print mindset. So when I started the site, I was still dealing with advertisers who were wary of us because we were on the internet and not a newspaper. And we're finally getting to the point where uh, our advertisers are almost universally somewhat savvy about the internet. I, I know that's a weird thing to say in 2022, yeah, but but. Doing some of the more advanced stuff, some of the some of the interactivity is new to some of the local advertisers we work with. So we're trying to work that into the mix. And you know, in addition to that, uh, a, a major focus recently has been automation and efficiency. So I had dreams, you know, starting out these sites that we would grow and we would have a newsroom the size of what has come before us. You know, ten person newsroom covering things in Arlington. Uh, that is, has not been the case. Right now, our company size is about 10 people total, full-time, mm-hmm. uh, plus some freelance. And we have about two-plus employees per site, and that includes uh, editorial staff, and then we have a staff photographer. I do not see the path to growing that much more beyond what we're doing. You know, We have outbound sales efforts trying to drum up that business, but I, I Right now, as, as it stands, there seems to be a cap. So the question is, how do we maximize what we're doing with the existing business we have? And what we've been focusing on is ways to increase efficiency. So we, we have found ways to be more efficient on the business side. So rather than hand creating each report to, to advertisers, we used a tool to automatically create that each month. Uh, we have a bunch of automations through Zapier to you know, streamline some of the, the creative process. And as AI has come along, not to touch a third rail topic, yeah, the oh, GPT-3, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> I, I've been looking for ways to potentially incorporate that into some of our business and editorial processes. Uh, I will tell you that we're not doing a whole heck of a lot. It's more along the lines of like suggesting tweets uh, on yeah. Slack uh, and coming up with uh, potential headlines. But I, I do think you know, as this technology advances, there might be opportunities down the road where it can do things like, uh, we also have it sum- summarizing some articles for, for our members. But I, I do think that there might be more opportunities down the road as that technology advances. It's right, right now it makes up too much stuff to have it write anything of consequence. But, yeah. uh, you know, if we can have our reporters focusing on higher impact reporting, you know, the local government coming up with scoops, and find kind of the uh, less important things, but still interesting to readers type uh, content for, for the a- AI to help with, I'm open to it, even yeah, though my reporters are a little afraid of it. Well, I think it's natural like to be afraid of, of the technologies that, and they come when they first come out and go into dystopian. I mean, this is just how we think. I've, I've like said this before. We just, we inevitably go 
we love technology because we're a technological species. We would not be here without technology. <laughs> but at the same time, we always had this fear of technology replacing us. It's been for forever, right? And like in reality, so far, our track record is pretty good. Like we haven't yet been replaced by technology. You know, technology I comes and displaces like jobs and stuff like this. But I think the the upside is exactly what you're talking about is the reality of, of of running businesses and having them even be able to to exist is is due to productivity gains and and efficiency gains and this has at least on the surface has a ton of potential to help exactly the kinds of businesses that we need on the local level i think so but i'll come up with an I'll give you another example of how we're using automation, not necessarily AI, mm -hmm. but we do a morning post on each of our sites with links to other outlets uh, and some interesting things they've covered. Also, the weather. Uh, we started automating that so uh, to, to various degrees. So the weather is automatically created. The links to other sites, we just uh, aggregate that with RSS and then use the automation to put that in each morning rather than you know, hand copy and pasting it events that are coming up that day in our event calendar. So that, that all gets automatically generated overnight. Uh, we don't have to spend a minute doing it. And then we can just put in, you know, some of the more, you know, handcrafted editorial content on top of that. You know, opportunities to do stuff like that, I, I think is going to be important. Because again, when you're in a resource constrained environment, and certainly at the community news level, you are, you need to, to maximize what you're doing with the talented people you employ and having them copy and paste events is not that. Yeah. I mean, these are the sort of like, I mean, I think back like, you know, in my 20 odd years, like working, like how many automation tools have made like kind of bullshit tasks that were part of my job, like before obsolete. And like, that's amazing. It's great. It didn't make, you know, what I, you know, the roles that I had obsolete. It made a lot of copying and pasting like unnecessary, and I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. And I think like all of these, I'm glad you brought up the efficiency discussion because it, the way you solve these problems is not just like as you said, like there's a cap. The reality is like there's a cap to a lot of the size of the market opportunity. Like, and the only way you you can the thing that you can control is your cost base. Like you can definitely control that. And so getting more efficient, it to me just seems like the necessary thing, even though a lot of people don't like to talk about it. I don't know. You know, I don't think it's a mistake that the that the the outlets you see kind of making a national play on the local level, the Axios local, 6 a.m. city, mm -hmm. even if we were to go back to patch, they're all based on a, a very efficient, you know, low headcount model. And look, do, do I think that that's necessarily what the future is going to be is mostly aggregated content and easy you know, copy and paste of, of press releases in some cases? No, I, I hope not. I, I hope that the future of local news is people going out and doing original work. And of course, local news exists in, in, in multitudes. You have the nonprofits doing you know, certain types of things and you have you know, sites like ours doing other things. But in, in general, I think if you want to see more local news across the country, you're going to have to find ways to systematize it, to find processes and to find efficiencies. Now, I, I have thoughts uh, on Axios Local. I, yeah, I no, I want to doing... get into I'm glad you're like segued <laughs> into this because they're your neighbors so, and they're like getting into your backyard. So like, 
What's up? Yeah. So, so Axios Local. So we we actually shared a co-working space in the Clarendon neighborhood of Arlington with Axios. And uh, suffice to say, they have grown faster than us. They're now at the top floor <laughs> of that building and doing quite well. And I, I'm, I've been really, you know, I, I think I've been really impressed from, from an operator standpoint of, of how they've been able to expand. I mean, they've expanded Axios Local at a, a really fast clip, if, if you really think of what, what goes into it. But they, they've had a model that's uniquely suited to them. So they were able to take their existing Axios, you know, these huge lists of, uh, from their existing national newsletters and find ways to you know, promote the local to them. And so they had a built-in audience. Then they had a very efficient model for acquiring new readers beyond that you know, pr- through you know, probably Facebook ads and, and, and some other means. And then they, they have the two to three people per site where you know there's some some local some original reporting but a lot of aggregation and you have a lot of central uh, central resources so that those those products they're putting out they're very buttoned up you're not going to find many typos in there they're well done the people they hire are good I've sampled a bunch of them and I feel like I, I feel like I don't want to cut you off, but like I feel like a lot of like you know purists are going to be like, oh, this is like you know, not, and I'm like, yeah, honestly, like I would get the one like in Miami, and I'm like, hmm, this like gets this is like seventy five percent of what I need. So for casual consumers of of call it more regional news, so you know the the metro level news, you know I know a lot of people who who, who like it. I I do think that you can't rely on on, on a product like that to get. To drill down to the more local level because they're just taking a too high of a you know a, a more higher level view uh, of the news, and so you're going to get a breezy read that's easy to get through. I, I do question whether they will be able to expand their model much beyond what they're doing because if you look at, at a lot of their their outlets, including the one in DC, there's not a, there's actually not a ton of local advertising. Now I'm sure they have local advertising in some of their markets. There's Charlotte market where. You know, they acquired Charlotte Agenda, which was just rip roaring in terms of their their business when they were acquired. Charlotte's very strong. I'm sure there are other strong markets, but DC and, and at least a couple of others I've seen it's been all national advertising. Now that national advertising is an advantage for them because it's giving them a business model. But can they grow much beyond the revenue that a national, you know, advertising model targeting local provides? Yeah, that, that's the big question. I'll be anxious to see what they do. Yeah, because I don't know if I think that's a great point. Because, like, if you're going to create more surface area, as as the business people like to say about for advertise national advertising, like local is like a really inefficient way to do that. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, if you're looking for more, you know, if you're Axios, like you need to create new markets, not like just take your existing advertiser base and find new places to like place them. I don't think. Well, the other thing that, that I think is a challenge is, is the national brand like gives you a head start, but I, I think it provides a bit of a ceiling. There's people on a local level, they do like things that are you know more uniquely local. I, I think local brands just resonate more and it, it, all things being equal. It'll, I'll be interesting, it, it'll be interesting to see in my view, you know, whether they can make Axios local you know, Axios Charlotte, Axios whatever, uh, a, a brand that really resonates strongly with people beyond where they're at right now. Yeah. 
So what do you think of the nonprofit models? Like, I mean, I know like nonprofit is, is, you know, tax designation and stuff, but we've seen a lot of activity with nonprofits. And I think it's likely going to be part of the solution. I always compare whatever happens with local news to kind of like healthcare. Like there's going to be an imperfect like patchwork of all kinds of different things. And we'll never fully get to, you know, blanket coverage, but, you know, we could get ourselves a good part of the way there with imperfect solutions. So first of all, there there are a lot of great nonprofits out there. I'm a member of Lion, local Mm -hmm. independent online news publishers, lots of great nonprofit Lion uh, members uh, that are doing great work. Uh, My critique of the nonprofit approach to local news is I I just don't think it's the main thing. I don't think it's like the the main outlet for a given local area. I, I don't think that's I think that they do a good job providing certain types of coverage in certain types of places. And a difference between, a, just very generally speaking, that, that it is just a tax designation. So yeah. this doesn't necessarily apply. But especially for those getting funding, you know, institutional funding through foundations and whatnot, you know, your your priority, whether you think this way or not, your priority is doing coverage that's valued by the people giving you the money, yeah. right? My my advertisers, they just want to reach as many people as possible. And, and so in that way, I think the non the for-profit model, it, 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 you know, first of all, no paywall for me. For me. Uh, that's another you know, point of contention where I, I, I think local coverage should be accessible to as wide an audience as possible. I do know that the paywall works for uh, a lot of sites out there. What, what's interesting to me is being able to have as much impact in the community as possible. I don't think you could do that if you're shutting off access yeah. to most of the people in the community. And by most of the people, it's like 98%. I mean, you're not getting much more than a couple of percentage of uh, the overall population subscribing to you. Yeah. I mean, that was actually part of the like Twitter fight over this. I, I'm, I, I can't believe I'm recounting this Twitter fight. But anyway, there was like a newsletter writer, I won't drag him, who was like, oh, well, you want... You want the local paper to break the news uh, about uh, about this co- this fake congressman with a fake record? <laughs> then then you better pay. Like, and it's like, oh well, it's your fault for you know that that there isn't like you know good local coverage because you're not paying for it. And I don't know if that's yeah. totally the best approach. I think pay- paywall is great if you have a, a, a niche site. So it works for a lot of you know business oriented publish- publications. The Post, the Washington Post in, in D.C., obviously, they're big enough that the paywall is mostly working for them, uh, although you know, to, they're having some issues yeah. right now. It could um, be going in reverse. But, but it's my, also, it's, you, you got to match it up with your, your business model, right? And your mission. You, you got to match your business model up with your mission. And if your editorial mission is to make local communities more informed about like, the communities around them, like, it's really hard to square that with a paywall. I think you can, membership is still possible. I mean, you can finesse the direct revenue where you still maintain your mission. Yeah. And our, you know, our membership product, it, it's just a couple percentages of revenue. Yeah. But what I will say about that is, is that that percentage of revenue this year is the difference between, between us being in the red and being in the green. Mm. So even though it's not a ton, it, it's very important for us where we can't really squeeze that much more out of the advertising side. The support from readers is, is really making a difference. So I, I do like the 
the membership model. And, and just to kind of land my plane on on the nonprofit side, yeah. I think that the nonprofit mo- nonprofits on the local level and the local news level are going to play a very important role in the overall ecosystem going forward. I, I just think that they're not going to have the ubiquity of like the local paper because they're going to approach their coverage in a in a more niche way that's not necessarily going to you know appeal to the entire community or you know maybe they're not even necessarily trying to do that maybe they're focusing on a, a specific type of news in a metro level yeah you know we a, a line member that comes to mind is one that that covers health news in north carolina which is you know i i think it's awesome that they they're able to cover an important topic on a statewide level and use a non i think they're a nonprofit. if, if so i apologize but it you know i that's that's I think the not, I think why you have a nonprofit is to help fund something that wouldn't otherwise exist. And yeah. I feel pretty strongly that that for-profit local news can exist uh, in most areas out there. And 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 so I, I don't think that uh, nonprofits going to be necessarily the thing that achieves the ubiquity that everybody's hoping for. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think like that ultimately in, in the market, you have to create a product people want and value and and they can value it with direct payments to you or they can value it with their time and their attention and their engagement with your sponsors, hopefully. But it, ultimately, when you're running a, a for-profit business, you've got to be you've got to be focused on, on particularly if you particularly if you're able to make it like you know, your audience being the focus because like you have to be focused on your audience where I think, like you say, you bring up a good point where I think a lot of times people skip over that is if you're relying on a foundation for your, your sustenance, well, it's clearly going to steer, it's going to steer your coverage just as much as like the idea that you're not going to have any quote, any quote unquote conflict. If you're like a nonprofit to me is naive to some degree. I think if you have, you know, a group of funders who are, you know, mostly kind of thinking the same way about how the direction your news outlet should be going, you're going to go that direction. You're not going to, uh, you're going to be a little reluctant to do something that's going to upset a large percentage of the people of the revenue you receive. Now, look, there there are conflicts of interest in any yeah. business, any media business. You know, obviously, advertising. There are some fraught areas, but I. On a local level, we have a couple hundred advertisers uh, across our three sites. And so any one of them drops away, it's not killing us. That's the other thing is if you're a for if you're a nonprofit with a lot of individual funders, you know, a lot of people contributing to you, you maybe have more freedom to to go certain ways that uh, you know a, a one or two large funders being your main yeah. sources of revenue wouldn't necessarily want you to go. Yeah, you need a broad base. That's <laughs> no matter what. If it's subscription, you need a broad base. If it's advertising, you need a broad base. And and if you're relying on grants, like you need a broad base. Because otherwise, you know, you're going to be beholden to yeah. a couple. You of are always beating the drum of having you know a diversity of revenue sources. Exactly. And I try to. We we've been trying that. We've been trying to sell those T-shirts. Okay, uh, awesome. I want to get one, but like we're gonna leave it there. I really appreciate you doing this, Scott. Thank you, Brian. Your own. Welcome back. Let's talk about like everyone's favorite topic: the the death of the third party cookie. Are you game? 
I'm game. I'm game. I think that's part of uh, the, you know, the issue that I have with uh, the whole cookie, cookie based uh, advertising world, which is really values retargeting regardless of where the uh, the user is, if they're in a premium environment or not, whether they're engaged or not. And you know, in that respect, the eventual sometime in the future of death of uh, party cookies, I think is actually going to be, it'll be short-term painful for many publishers, but I think long-term, it's probably the best thing that's happened in about 20 years because it, it kind of brings back the sovereignty, the the importance of a the premiumness and the user experience on publishers. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing uh, that could have uh, uh, could have gone in favor of uh, publishers. I think that's going to be good. You know, right. People keep telling me it's going to die. I like I you know I think I remember it was two years ago. I uh, I had like our the creative director at, at Digiday come up with um, you know uh, all these things. They put the cookie in a guillotine and like all the stuff around the cookie, but yet the cookie is still freaking with us like uh, eventually supposedly it's going away um but like let's just assume it is going to eventually go away i mean first of all for for the for those who are not totally up to speed how did the third party cookie s- play this unlikely central role in the advertising industrial complex as you called it <laughs> Yeah, it's it's weird, but uh, when the internet started, and I was starting my first companies around around that time, '95 um, or so, uh, the and the cookie first came out. That was uh, it was like a very neat hat. Uh, I looked at it and said, "Wow, really cool idea, very neat." And you know, it's going to survive a year, maybe two, before kind of the hack is is pro- properly productized. And here we are 25 years later or more, and wow. the whole industry is, uh, is based on third party cookie. I, I think it's a, it's a terrible identifier in, uh, in two ways. Uh, the first way is the fidelity of data is very low. Cookies come and go. They get deleted. They're, they're very hard to keep uh, persistent over time. And so for a user that wants to be identified, wants to register for a service and wants to get a better experience and personalization, uh, cookie-based is, uh, is low fidelity for that. On the other hand, it's kind of a, a net that captures all data across uh, places where users understand and don't understand. And so it's a very broad in, in the bad sense, and it's not high fidelity enough in the more narrow sense. And so, you know, I think it's high time that as an industry, we ultimately get rid of it and uh, find identifiers that are user-driven, where the user understands what the data they're opening and who they're opening it to, and have those be more persistent. But it's it's going to take time. It's a whole yeah. industry. So do you, from your perspective, is is the greatest argument against the, the cookie just that it's, it's, first of all, it was never meant to do all the things that it's, it's doing and it's not very good at doing them probably as a result of it, or is it around it being like a true quote unquote privacy threat? Because I, I can remember over the years, I've always said like with like with privacy and this industry, it was always the last panel of the day at events. Okay. Number one. And number two, like the responses ended up, cause I've had to moderate a lot of these last panels of the day here. I'm not going to be honest with you. And the responses were always the direct mail guys are sketchier. Number one. And, uh, no PII. 
there's no victim. Find me a victim of like, you know, the cookie, like where is the victim? Um, but it sounds like you're just saying like, it's a bad tool. I, again, I, I think it was a, uh, intended as a short-term hack that's, you know, you, you don't base an entire industry on a, on a short-term hack that was built for, for something very different. Um, as an identifier, I, you know, I think probably as humanity, the, um, the vocabulary is probably uh, not doing us a big favor and in, in using a term like privacy. Uh, I do think they're uh, the stuff that usually can be done by cookies. I don't view as any violation of privacy. No one's coming to my home. No one's knowing what my name is and all that. Uh, but I, I do think people get the eerie kind of uh, creepy yeah. experience of, uh, you know, I touched this shoe on one site and like, how is that following me? I feel like I'm in a dark alley and I have this helicopter <laughs> with, uh, with the spotlight on me uh, wherever I go. And I think that creepiness is something we need to yeah. get rid of. Yeah. I mean, that was always the thing. It's like the, what's creepy and what's not is always this, the, the, the question. And, and the problem is it's like, it's very vague, right? It's like, and, and it's not like cut and dry. And I think everyone wants like cut and dry answers. And I think particularly internet advertising to me was mostly built by technologists. And like, sometimes like just because you can do things with a technology doesn't mean you should like, and so maybe like have a few humanities majors around as a humanities major. I'll just say like, don't cast all of us out. I are, you already said we were going to still need editors. So I appreciate that already. Um, but like, I, I think that. You know, when we talk about the the trust issues and when it comes to um, publishing and journalism, I think you can't discount this because the system got built to such a degree that so many things had to happen in the back room. It's just like now they bring like the credit card machines finally in the United States to your table. And somehow the rest of the world, they were able to do this for like a couple decades before us. I'm glad it finally arrived. Um, but like... My problem is not like that everyone was like stealing my information by taking my credit card and disappearing with it for 20 minutes. I'm like, why are you taking my credit card for 20 minutes and disappearing with it? Like, it's just very strange. Um, I don't know what's going on in the back room. Maybe you're making a copy of it. Maybe you're not. I don't know. Um, and I think that is what, you know, ends up leading to a lot of the more conspiratorial things. Like, I, I remember. Right before COVID, I was talking to a, a group at an agency in Boston. There was like 200 people from an ad agency there. I think it was Digitas. And like, I asked how many people think that like Facebook is listening to them through their phones. And a majority of hands went up, right? I don't believe Facebook is listening to us. No, I, I don't either. But, <laughs> but I keep having friends that are saying, oh, I have this uh, right. where they're listening. And, you know, I think people don't understand uh, the coincidences and just probabilities just kind of yeah calculating. but i but i think to me the, the it's so unlikely and i'm like my god like if you see how like you know duct tape together a lot of these systems are there's no way that like that they would they would be able to do that but i think because like a lot of the stuff has not involved consumers it's never been truly explained to consumers and so much is happening by companies that they've never heard of and never actively had a relationship with in order to like provide the experience that like their minds go um, in this direction. So I think that's like, but like, I think from a publisher perspective, what I'd like to get at is 
the big question, and it's like hard because there's so many different kinds of publishers, but like are publishers broadly speaking winners or losers in whatever this new era that we still haven't totally identified what it is because we don't know what the identifiers are going to be as this new era begins of digital advertising and targeting? Yeah. So as you said, there are different, a lot of different flavors of publishers, but I think in general, the publishers are going to be the biggest benefactors of uh, this. I think the biggest losers are going to be uh, the folks, especially technologies on the advertiser side, uh, that are trying to recapture users in that dark alley with uh, with the helicopter. Uh, <laughs> I think for publishers, they're, they're the ones that are touching users and engaging them uh, day in, day out. And I think that's the kind of engagement they haven't been able to sell to advertisers for the past 15, 20 years because those users are just a commodity that can be captured by retargeters. I think suddenly the really the only place you can get them is by interacting with the publishers that best engage their, their audiences. Yeah. But like, so everyone's talking then about first party data and, and known users, getting users in a logged in state and all this. And I think that that sounds like a great like building block and stuff. But the reality is like most publishers, the overwhelming number of users who are going to be arriving on their site are going to be unknown, right? Probably for most uh, publishers, you know, it's probably going to be a Pareto, uh, 80% uh, unknown for a while. And, and maybe, maybe if they're lucky, 20%. Thing is, I don't think it's a trade-off of, uh, you know, a one, one-to-one ratio of a user being unidentified or identified. I think the fidelity of data you have by a registered user, someone that, that knowingly and intently uh, put in their email and has logged in, uh, the value of that is so much greater than one anonymous user. Uh, where I think they got our models uh, that we played around with showed that if you got just 15% of your audience to uh, to register, not not a paywall, just register with their email and be logged in, the fidelity of data that you get across browser, across uh, device, is so much greater that on advertising you're going to make the that trade-off worthwhile. Thanks again to Jay Sparks of Pod Help Us for producing this podcast. To find out more about how you can get your own podcast, please visit podhelp.us and get in touch with Jay. We'll be back next week with uh, another episode. Mm-hmm.